Good morning. Boy, it's so glad, I'm so glad to be back. Uh, we've never had four weeks off at the same time, and uh, I felt really separated all of those uh, weeks from you, and, and I was thinking of you and praying for you. Someone said to me, did you have a great vacation away from us? And I said, well, that wasn't the purpose of it, to get away from you. And I missed you, and I'm so glad to be back. But I was able to watch the service uh, at times uh, on the website, and some of you are watching right now on the website. Some friends up in Drummond Island watch every week on the website, and uh, they're gathering a group of people to do that. So that's called South North. And uh, it's, uh, there are other pockets of uh, people watching, so we're glad that you're joining us today. But I'm truly glad to be back. And Pastor Nick, glad to have you and, and uh, your beautiful wife, Carrie Ann, with us. And did you read scripture today? Did everyone know this is our new youth pastor? Okay, good. You know that. I haven't been here for a few weeks. I didn't know, so... So we're going to do a new series, starting a new series, just for the month of August. And it's going to be on the life of Gideon. April 25th, this past year, there was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake that hit Nepal. Remember reading about that? While the Nepalese were recovering from that earthquake, a second one hit. The stats that I've received say that over a half million homes were destroyed and over 8,500 people lost their lives. What, that's three times the size of 9-11 as far as loss of life? It is the deadliest, uh, most devastating time that the Himalayan country had ever experienced on record. On the day of the earthquake... Rishi Kanal, age 27, was in a restaurant on the main floor of the hotel in the capital city of Kathmandu. After he finished eating, he went up to the second floor where his room was, and that's when the earthquake hit, and the building around him crumbled, and he was trapped in the debris. He was alive, but his foot was crushed, and he began to call out for help. And he called out for help and no one came. And he called out and he, he was banging with the rubble upon rubble and making all kinds of noise. But when he stopped, he heard no noise. No noise of people coming in. No noise of people going out. All around him were dead bodies. And he said the smell was unbelievable. For a day and a night he called out and no one came. For another day and night, he called out, and no one came. He held on to hope, but then he began to think, is this rubble my tomb? Finally, a French rescue team showed up, and they heard him moaning, and they found his location. They separ separated the debris, and with a loving hand, reached down to help him up. Before they could get him up, they had to perform an operation that took a couple hours, and then they extracted him from the debris. When all was said and done, he was in that debris for 82 hours. That's almost three and a half days. And this is what he said in his hospital bed, recovering with his family around him. I had some hope for a while, but yesterday I gave up hope. 
What happens to a person when they give up hope? They're as good as dead. I was sure no one was coming for me. I was certain I was going to die. Imagine the fear, the desolation, the feeling of loneliness when you say, I gave up hope and I was certain I was going to die. I'm convinced there's a lot of people who live their lives on planet Earth just like that, trapped in a bunch of debris, a bunch of junk. They can't get out themselves, and they hold on to hope for a while, but after a while, after all the noise and all the banging and all the shouting, they finally give up hope. And they're certain they're going to die, and there's no reason to live, and there's no expectation of deliverance. Well, I tell you, that sounds exactly like the people of Israel in the book of Judges who often were buried in the rubble of their own disobedience and then oppressed by forces outside of their control. And they cried out to God. They had given up hope, and then God appeared. God extended a helping hand and pulled them out of the rubble. And gave them a reason to live. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 6 with me. Judges chapter 6. You know the book of Joshua is a book of conquest, right? And confidence. And the book of Judges is a book of compromise. And confusion. And yet in the midst of all of it, I think there are some real spiritual keys to living a victorious, healthy, obedient Christian life. And I want us to discover those as we go through at least part of the book of Judges, the life of Gideon. Chapter 6 is where the story of Gideon really begins. And I want to begin with verse 1. Again, and you may want to underscore that word because it's going to happen again and again and again. Again, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. In other words, times were so bad, they lost their homes, they lost their property, and they were living in caves. They were living in like animals. Anywhere they could find a little bit of protection. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, along with the Amalekites and other eastern people, invaded the country. In other words, they waited for harvest time and then swooped down. They camped on the land. They ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock, their tents, like swarms of locusts. What does that mean? Well, it's the picture of an army so big you can't count them. And when they leave, everything is devastated. It's impossible to count the men and their camels. By the way, this is the first time camels have ever been used in warfare, recorded in Scripture, and perhaps in other times as well. 
So the camels are, you know, you don't think of a camel maybe as the swiftest of animals, but they can move pretty good and certainly faster than a human being. And now they have the ability to raid, to come quickly upon their enemy and victim and to have a superior force. They invaded the land to ravage it. Verse 6, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Politically, they were under the control of a, form, of a foreign military power. Emotionally, they were crushed and had no hope. Economically impoverished, morally corrupt. Times could not be worse than they were. This is as bad as it gets, so to speak. But how did they get this way? That's the question. And this morning, I want us to look at the backstory to understand how things got so bad. Look at chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Judges. And it starts out in verse 1 with these sobering words, Joshua is dead. Here's the guy who led the conquest. He's gone. And there's a vacuum of leadership. They had Moses, then they had Joshua, and now they have nobody. So in verse 3, Judah steps up. Judah is one of the 12 tribes. And they say to another tribe, the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites, and then we in turn will go with you into your territory. And so that's what they did. And the early part of the book of Judges is pretty exciting with victory after victory. As Judah takes the lead, until you come down to verse 19 and you read something that is mystifying. The Lord was with the men of Judah and they took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains. They took the hills, couldn't take the plains because the people in the plains had iron chariots. Now, is that the real problem? I don't think so. But that's the excuse they gave. And by the way, whenever we don't fulfill the word of God, we always find a good excuse. There's a lion in the street. Can't plant because it's going to rain. We can't go into war because they've got iron chariots. There's giants in the land. We've heard them all. The Lord has heard them all. But it's a mystifying verse. Look at verse 21. Things begin to go downhill. The Benjamites failed to dislodge the Jebusites. Verse 27, Manasseh, another tribe, couldn't drive out the people of Beth Shan. Verse 29, Ephraim couldn't drive out the Canaanites. Same with Zebulun in verse 30. Verse 31, another tribe, Asher, they couldn't drive out those living in Akko. And verse 33, Naphtali couldn't drive out those living in Beth Shemesh. In other words, every one of the tribes now somehow couldn't go forward and clean out the land of false gods and the people who worship them and occupy the land for Jehovah. Why? I mean, I'm mystified because in verse 19 it says the Lord was with them, and yet it says, but they couldn't. Do you ever write that in your journal at the end of the day? The Lord was with me, and I, but I couldn't. I mean, if the Lord's with you, aren't you always going to be victorious? 
If I didn't have any more of the record to read, I would begin to think that something's wrong with God. He said he'd be with them. He'd said he'd give them victory. He did, and then stopped. What's wrong with God? By the way, do you ever say that? Lord, how come you haven't? How come, Lord, you? And we began to blame the Lord for the difficulties we face. Well, let me show you the real reason in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord. Now, we'll talk more about the angel of the Lord next week. But the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal. That's the very first town established and settled after Joshua led the people into the land of Canaan. The angel went from Gilgal to Bochim. Now, the place wasn't called Bochim until a little later on in the chapter. What is it, verse 5 or verse 6? Bochim means weeping. And the place got its name because they wept there when they realized they had disobeyed God. But the angel comes from Gilgal to Bochim and says, I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you into the land. I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break covenant with you. Notice the word swore and covenant. An oath and a covenant. This is all covenant language. And whenever you have a covenant, you have at least two parties. There's the initiator of the covenant who says, I will. And then there's the other party or parties who respond by saying, we shall. I will. We shall. So notice the covenant. God said, end of verse 1, I will never break covenant with you. And the Israelites, and you shall not make covenant with the people of this land. You shall break down their altars. In other words, don't join in league with the people in the land because they worship false gods. And if you become united with them, you will worship their gods. And if you worship their gods, you cannot be blessed. What we don't realize is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you obey him, he will bless you. But if you disobey him, if you get outside of the realm of his blessing and protection, you're going to suffer the consequences of your own disobedience. So don't join yourself to idols, God says. It's not because I want you only for myself. In a proper way, he does as a husband has jealous for his wife. It's not because he wants to keep us from having fun on the outside. It's because the blessing is on the inside in fellowship and union with him. So God says, I will, and he says, you shall. Don't make covenant with people because of their false gods. In fact, you need to break down their altars. Verse 2 says, yet you've disobeyed me. You've disobeyed. Why have you done this? Can't you see the angel himself questioning such insanity? In fact, the greatest insanity in all the world is to go against the God who loves you and made you. That's insane. Well, I think I'll go out on my own. I think I can do things better than God. I know where happiness is found. I'll go against the God who made me and loves me, and I'll find more blessing. That's insane. Where'd you come up with that? And that's what Israel is doing. So, verse 3 the angel says, Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive out before you the nations. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. 
If you have idols in your life that you will not drive out, those idols will be a thorn in your side and a snare to your soul. God, he gives you principles, and those principles are not to bind you, but to bless you, not to restrict you, but to enlarge your happiness and enhance your life. You go against God, and you worship other gods? Well, there'll be a thorn in your side. Ever try to sleep with a thorn in your body, in your flesh? And there'll be a snare to your soul, a trap that you're not looking for, that will catch you unaware and impede your progress. And so they wept, and the place was called Bokim. Look at verse 14. This is amazing. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders. That is, the, the military party, kind of the advance party, the scouts, the Navy SEALs, the Marines who go in first, the raiders will come, representing a heathen nation, and they will plunder you, and I will sell you to them. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them, saved them out of the hands of the raiders. Now notice, it's the Lord who gave them over to the raiders, verse 14, and the Lord who gave them judges to deliver them from the raiders, verse 16. The Lord handed them over to be enslaved, and the Lord raised up judges to save. Well, that sounds weird, doesn't it? But it's because of their disobedience and because of God's compassion. If God were just a God of justice, a God who was angry, who God, God who cared nothing about love and mercy, he'd just hand you over and forget it. Why deliver you up from the enemy? Why send you a judge to deliver you. Well, look at verse 18, middle of the verse. For the Lord had compassion on them. And when they groaned under those who oppressed them and afflicted them, God heard. He heard their cry and sent a deliverer. And so the book of Judges can maybe best be summarized by its theme verse found twice, chapter 17, verse 6, and also chapter 21, verse 25, the very last verse of the book, book of Judges. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the way I memorized it. This is a paraphrase that I think comes from the New Living Translation. All the people did it, whatever seemed right to them. Whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Whatever they thought was appropriate. That's what they did. Or the NIV puts it this way. Everyone did what they thought was fit. Does that not sound like America today? When there is no king, no rule of law, everyone does what they think is right. And what do you have? Chaos. So what you've got, chaos. Go against the God who loves you and the God who made you? Chaos. Serve any other God and you will be oppressed. Now, there's a vicious cycle in the book of Judges that repeats six times. There are four steps in this cycle, and it's repeated six different times. Let's just look at the four steps, and maybe you'll see them in your own life. Step number one is sin or rebellion. That is, the people 
went against the law of God. They did evil. They sinned. And then the second step is oppression. God gave them over to the raiders. He handed them over to the nations around them. He wouldn't drive out the people out of the land and give the land exclusively to Israel. Step number three is intercession or prayer. They cry out for help. And by the way, in all these six cycles, the word cry is used. Because that's what you do when you're oppressed. That's what you do when you're buried under the rubble and there's no way out. You cry for help. And step number four, and this happens in all the, four all the six cycles, God delivers them. You say, Lord, you mean they sinned over and over six different times and you still answered their prayer? I'm sure glad God does that because this cycle sounds a lot like my life. And it may sound like the addiction of your life. You're in a rut that you cannot break. Well, there's hope for you because when you pray, God shows up. And that's what the book of Judges tells us. He's a God of compassion who's not just going to hand you over. He's going to respond to your cry and deliver you. But even before we get to the deliverance, oh, first of all, let's look at the six stages just quickly. And we'll not be able to study all six of these stages. We're focusing just on Gideon. But the first stage is the nation of the Arameans coming in. And for eight years, they're bringing bondage to the people of God, the Israelites, until they cry for help and God raises up a judge by the name of Othniel. That story starts in chapter 3, verse 7. And Othniel delivers the people and there's a time of peace and rest. Stage number two, now we have the Moabites coming. This time, the bondage is 18 years. By the way, it seems that the bondage gets more intense each time. Not necessarily longer when we just count the years, but more intense. And God raises up Ehud. Remember his battle with the fat king Eglon? We won't get into that story. It's a pretty funny one. Uh, you can read about that in Judges. And Shamgar also kills a bunch of Philistines. He's another judge. Third stage, now we have uh, the Canaanites, and Deborah is the one who is raised up as a judge, along with Barak, or Barak, the general. And I'm, I'm excited that God uses a woman here to be a leader in Israel, simply to tell us that women can lead. And they can be in positions that give direction and leadership, as Deborah did. And that's an amazing story, too. Stage number four is the stage that we're going to focus on, the Midianites. They were only in bondage for seven years, but they were a tough seven years. People living in caves, having their groceries stolen at every turn of the day, and living in fear and devastation until Gideon comes and delivers them. Stage five, it's the Philistines, 18 years. Jephthah is the one who comes to deliver them. And then again, the Philistines in stage six. And the famous Samson is the one. This time their bondage was 40 years. And Samson is the one that God uses to deliver. By the way, if you study the lives, as we are going to, of Gideon, if you study the lives of all the judges, of all of those used to deliver the people of God, they are weak, frail, imperfect people. And I'm thankful that the God of mercy is also the God of the second chance and the God who chooses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. We'll see all of that in the book of Judges.
But before we cry out for deliverance, maybe we need to learn something from our trials. And I'm convinced that the text tells us our trials are designed to to do at least three things. Number one, they're designed to test our faith. That's chapter 2. Look at verse 21. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations. Joshua left when he died. Verse 22. I will use them to test Israel to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The word test is used again in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 4. The trials are designed to test your faith. So whenever you experience a trial, a difficulty, whatever the trial is, you're making or you're totally innocent, ask this question, or actually reaffirm in your soul this truth. God is testing my faith. God wants my faith to grow. Someone defined a trial as a God-given opportunity for growth and development in the Christian life. (laughs) Is that how you define a trial? I define it as a pain in the neck. I define a trial as something that irritates me and bothers me and I want to get rid of and I I hate it. No, a trial is a God-given opportunity for your faith to grow and develop. God is testing your faith. New Testament commentary on that is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. Let me just read it to you. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you suffer grief and you are suffering all kinds of trials. I want you to know that these trials have come so that your faith, which is more precious than gold, might be proven genuine. And that your faith, which is more precious than gold, will result in the glory and praise and honor of Jesus. I want to grow your faith so that you will praise my son. That's what God is doing in your trials. I don't like the trial. Neither do I. But I need to see it's a God-given opportunity for my faith to grow. How will I respond? Secondly, In our trials, God is trying to teach us about warfare. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previously experienced battle. They had no previous battle experience. A group of descendants. I'd never seen this before. We're talking now about the third generation, aren't we? Go back to chapter 2, verse 10. It was talking about Joshua being gone, Joshua dying. Verse 10 says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. That's talking about the second generation, the generation of, of Joshua and the children of the Israelites. Think with me now. The first generation, they were under Moses, right? They were formed in Egypt as a nation. God brought them out with the Exodus, and he was going to take them into the promised land, but they what? They disobeyed, had no faith. They said, if we go into the promised land, there are giants in the land. Our kids are going to get killed. God said, your kids are the only ones that are going to survive. You're all going to die in the wilderness. And the first generation died in the wilderness, right? 
Their kids, second generation, grow up in the wilderness and with Joshua now, under his command, occupy the land. The book of Joshua. There's the conquests and the battles that are fought and the victories that are won. Third generation, chapter 2, verse 10. Another generation grew up and they didn't know the Lord. And they didn't know what God had done for Israel. What? You mean that second generation that, co- that led the conquest never taught their kids the stories? Oh, my dear friend, if you were a parent, God's given you a divine responsibility to raise your kids up in the nurture and training of the Lord. Teach them the stories of God's victories, both in the Bible and your own life. Let them see that God is real. They need to know Jehovah, and the way, only way they'll know Jehovah is really through your testimony and through your life and through your words. Teach them that God is real and he is awesome. Or else, a generation will rise up who neither knows the Lord nor what he's done. And if that's the case, verse 11, they'll do evil in the eyes of the Lord and they'll serve the Baals. Baal or Baal is the most popular god of the Canaanites. He was the god of the storm. His chariot was the cloud. His voice, the thunder. The lightning was his arrow. He was also a fertility god, and wherever Baal was worshipped, there was sexual immorality practice, temple prostitution. Also, there was child sacrifice established with the Baal. His wife, Ashtoreth, also a goddess of fertility, with the same kind of sexual immorality being practiced. This was the God they exchanged for Jehovah? You've got to be kidding me. That they began to worship the Baals in all forms and disobeyed Jehovah God. That's the generation. And they grew up not knowing how to battle. So God says, I'm going to leave the nations in the land and teach you how to fight. Teach you that there's a war going on. And maybe that's why God sends our trials our way, because we need to be taught that there's a war going on. You and I are in a battle. And many days, most Christians wake up never thinking about the battle. Probably because they've already surrendered. Maybe because we just don't like to fight or we don't know how, but God teaches us. New Testament commentary on this, Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God so that you might be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our enemies are not people. Our enemies, it's not the Congress. It's not our government, it's not our president, it's not the local officials, it's not the groups that are formed together to fight against Christianity. They're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. We were just like them before the God of grace touched our soul. The enemy is the devil himself, the prince of darkness, and that's who's fighting against us. The devil desires to sift you like wheat, Jesus said to Peter. And later, Peter said, you know, the devil's like a roaring lion prowling through the world, seeking whom he may devour. He's looking at you. 
and he wants to destroy your life. We're in a warfare against the world, not the people in it, but the system that the world has adopted. We're battling against that. We're battling, battling against the king of darkness, the devil himself. And we're battling with the flesh that resides in us. You know what that is like? <laughs> the nations that haven't been driven out yet. There'll be a thorn in your side and a snare to your soul. And we've got to fight. So you and I have trials to teach us that we're in a war. Thirdly, you and I have trials to drive us to our knees. And now we're back to chapter 6 of Judges. Midian was so impoverished, verse 6 says, that the Israelites, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he responded. Isn't that amazing? When we pray, God hears and answers. Isn't that amazing? Can there any be, be anything more exciting in all the universe that you can talk with the God of the universe and you can pray and he'll respond? When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. And the prophet just repeated the words of the angel in chapter 2. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of slavery. I snatched you from the power of the Egyptians. I drove people out of your land, the oppressors. I gave you their land. I said, don't worship their gods. Verse 10, the last part of the verse, but you didn't listen. And then God sent a deliverer, verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you. And Gideon said, say what? Some translations have the word, pardon me, or the phrase, pardon me. Could you say that again? If the Lord is with us, how come all these bad things are happening? We know the answer, don't we? But that's how we often respond. If the Lord is with me, how come all this bad stuff is happening? And then the Lord said to Gideon, you are a mighty warrior. And Gideon said, say what? No, you. I'm going to use you. It's one of the most astounding things in the world. God wants to use you. Say, you don't understand how weak I am. Wait until you see how weak Gideon is. God wants to use you. Because then when the victory is accomplished, he gets the glory, not you. When we cry out to God in prayer, he answers. Samuel Chadwick the great saint of the past said this, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from our prayerless religion. He laughs at our work. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles at our prayers. The devil isn't too concerned about a busy church or a growing church or a rich church. Or religious church, he's concerned about a praying church. Because when you pray, God shows up. And mighty things happen. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to realize today that when we face a trial, you are testing our faith. You're teaching us to fight. 
and you're driving us to our knees. And may we face all the trials of life from that divine perspective so that we can be totally dependent upon you. Sometimes our prayer is the prayer of repentance. Sometimes our trials are consequences of our own sin, like it was with Israel. But at other times, our prayer is not just repentance, it's the prayer of dependence. And that's where we acknowledge that without you, we can do nothing. Help us, Lord, this day to follow you with all of our hearts and to cry out, Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.